hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. We are so excited for our upcoming virtual retreat on the 24th and 25th of September, in which we'll have more than 20 hours of phenomenal jam-packed content, which is the equivalent of doing a 10-week creative writing course, except with the kind of guest speakers you'd never have access to otherwise. We have such an amazing lineup for you, including New York Times bestselling authors, three of Reese's book club pick authors, award-winning editors, and writing coaches. You'll learn about point of view, structure, plotting, writing a proposal, outlining your novel, and much, much more. You'll also learn about current market trends and how they shape what agents and editors are actively looking for, as well as how to attract an agent's attention. You'll be taught how to craft page-turning bestsellers, how to overcome rejection, and what to expect from the writing life. Besides all of this, we're helping you discover a community on our Retreats Facebook page, in the breakaway sessions with Carly, Cece, and myself, and in the various social activities we have planned from the Friday night onwards. All the sessions will have Q&As so that you can speak directly with authors and editors at the top of their game. 
The retreat will be recorded so that if there's a day you can't attend, you'll still be able to catch up immediately afterwards. And then you'll get to ask us your burning questions in the post-retreat Q&A Zoom on the 3rd of October. Come and engage, interact, learn and grow. We can't wait to see you there. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. I'm really excited today to have our guest agent joining us. Those of you who've been a long time listener of the podcast will have heard them join us before and it's so wonderful to have them back. So welcome back to Emmy Nordstrom Higdon. Actually, it's Dr. Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, uh, who is from Westwood Creative Artists. Emmy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to get to speak with you. Yeah, we love having you here. And thanks again for looking at all of our submissions that were submitted to a guest agent. You have chosen four of them. Will you kick us off with the first one? Yeah, absolutely. They were all so fun to read. So I did pick four and I will start with one called Elemental from Kate Taff. So I'll start by reading the query letter. It's a little bit long, but I will read quickly. So it says, Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. What happens when God appears in humanity's final hour, revealing themselves to Earth's ravaged population, answering our prayers? Only they have not come to save us. They have come to safeguard their own survival at all costs. At just under 80,000 words, Elemental is best described as science fiction. It combines the operatic sweep of James Corey's The Expanse, the atmosphere of Cass Morgan's The 100, with the curiosity of the 2016 film Arrival, based on Ted Chiang's The Story of Your Life. Elemental is set in a devastated future. For over a century, humanity has been reduced to approximately 10,000 people living in Earth's orbit on a collection of old space stations and a long-forgotten outpost on planet Mars. Rapidly dwindling resources, an inhospitable planet, political deadlock, and increasing insurgencies on the space stations and Mars challenge their survival. Collaboration is their only option, but is threatened by the brewing conflict over resources between the Martians, who diverged from humanity over a century ago, and the Space Station Collective. Thrown into a role far beyond her imagined abilities, Elemental tells the story of Aya, a botanist's apprentice born to the Saursa Station. A naturalist with crippling anxiety who believes that humanity's future lies back on Earth is at odds with her twin, Hendrik, a natural leader who believes that the future lies out in the stars. Together, on a scavenging mission to Earth, they make a discovery that changes everything. My career has been a story in two acts. Before my children, I was a television producer for a national network, and after their arrival, I managed communications for a member of parliament. I have written for most of my professional life, but never in my own voice. Elemental is one of my first ventures in writing for myself. These days, when I'm not writing, I'm learning to live in my empty nest by playing tennis, hiking, or contemplating learning to sail. Thank you for your time. I look forward to hearing your feedback. Awesome, Amy. Thank you. Wow. Okay, so this is interesting. And I really take my head off to the author because when you have a world like this with that you've spent so much time world building, you want the person reading your query letter to understand the world so much. And so you could be tempted to write too much about the world and not enough about the characters and the stakes and the central conflict, etc. So what was your take on that, Amy? No, absolutely. I completely agree. I think that it's really difficult, like both in the text itself and also in the query letter to introduce like a non-Earth setting, especially when there are really complex levels of world building involved. I find it, that's one of my biggest challenges when I'm taking on science fiction and fantasy novels in general is to find books that have the world building executed in a way that's going to be accessible to a large number of readers. 
I love good world building, but I do find that sometimes people can get heavy handed with details and not know what to include or what not to include. And that definitely bleeds into queer litter. So I think that the author has done a pretty good job here. The queer litter is a little over a page. So in my written feedback, I did chop a whole bunch of things out of those paragraphs, but it's not so much because they're poorly written. It's just because for me personally, I like it when a query letter is like as efficient as as possible. And I think that there are things here that we don't necessarily need to know in the query letter. But I think that she's included the things that we do need to know, which is probably the more important part, to be honest, because it's easier to trim it than it is to add those things in later. Could you give our listeners just one or two examples of what you trimmed for their own query letters? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, I wanted this section to focus on on the characters and on the plot line. So I can read you the much shorter version. Essentially, I cut out the second part of the first paragraph. So I really tried to make it focus on sort of the tension between Aya, which was the character that caught my attention when I was reading the letter, and then her brother. So once I had trimmed it, what I was left with was, for over a century, humanity has been reduced to approximately 10,000 people living in Earth's orbit on a collection of old space stations and a long-forgotten outpost on planet Mars. I think that's really important information, just basic about the book itself. And then I jumped to Aya is a botanist's apprentice born to the Sarasa station. A naturalist with crippling anxiety who believes that humanity's future lies back on Earth is at odds with her twin, Hendrik, a natural leader who believes that the future lies out in the stars. Together on a scavenging mission to Earth, they make a discovery that changes everything. And I made a note that I would like to know a little bit more about like what that discovery is. So hopefully with that extra space, she can put in a few words about what it is exactly that is being challenged. I think that the thing that caught my attention the most, though, is this, the idea of the choice between sort of a future on Earth and a future, like on some sort of colonial space outpost. I think that's something, actually, that's very timely, even though this is a science fiction book. So that was what I was excited about when I was reading this letter. Yeah, this gave me vibes of Emily St. John Mandel's latest Sea of Tranquility, where there are colonies in Mars and, and various other planets, etc. But yes, I agree with you. I think the temptation is to focus more on the world when what we want to know is the plot, who the characters are, and what's at stake. And I think that's definitely something that needs to be added to this query letter. What's at stake if it is on Earth? What's at stake if it's not on Earth? What's at stake for these characters as they fight against each other to to decide which is, is the best way to go? All right, so Emmy, will you give us an understanding of what was in those opening pages before you take us through them? You've actually, I think, given like a great segue here, because the reason why I struggled with this query, and I actually made a note in my written feedback, which is, I think, available for to your Kofi subscribers or supporters, of where I would have stopped reading if I had received this in my inbox, because really, the writing sample that she included with this letter is a lot of really beautifully written exposition. It's clear to me, like from reading it, that the author is extremely skilled with words. Like there's no doubt in my mind that the line 
level writing is absolutely beautiful. And I think it's interesting that in the query letter, she says that it's best described as science fiction, because I think what she's really getting at is that this is more of a literary novel than it is a commercial science fiction story. I don't think we're going to see like space wars (laughs) in this book, which is fine with me. But I sort of understood the query letter more once I read the sample, because it is a lot of description. And the thing that I was kind of missing is that especially in such a competitive market, even for a literary novel, those three elements that you're talking about wanting in the query letter, I really want on like the first page of the book. So when we're talking about content, I really want like an introduction to the character. I really want to know what the central conflict of the story is. And I really want to know kind of what the character is going to experience. Like I want that teased in the first page of the book and then a little like for it to sort of start unfolding in the early pages. And I really felt like it would be beautiful if it was in the middle of the book, the writing sample, but I think that the author is meandering a little too much in this in the sample because nothing really happens, and I wanted things to happen. And I know that, like, I really love reading quiet, like, slowly unfolding books, but I also know that's not what editors are looking for right now. And I, <laughs> I always come back to this one phone call I had not that long ago. To be fair, it was with a YA editor, but still, who said that if there isn't something that's exploded in the first five pages, then she's, like, not even interested. She's just going to, like, stop reading right there. And so I think for me, really the biggest challenge with this would be to maybe restructure, find a writing sample that's going to be a little faster paced to pull the reader in and find a way to make sure that she's starting, like, really in the action of the story rather than focusing on exposition early on. I know that's, like, it might sound like unconventional advice, but I think that's sort of where we're at in, like, the contemporary market is that exposition really needs to come later. And it's not intuitive when you're a writer and you want to really like ease people in and give people like, obviously a plot can be evocative too, but I think that the writing here is very evocative rather than sort of focused on action and plot. And I think that I wanted more of that early on. Yeah. A lot of what you've said there is stuff that, that we can unpack. So firstly, that a writer can be a phenomenal writer, write really well at the sentence level, but just perhaps are focusing at the wrong things on a scene level. And kudos to this writer. It is hard to teach people to write at a sentence level. So at a line level, that's not something I can do as a creative writing instructor. I can give advice, but that's something you kind of have or don't. But I could give advice at the story level. So once you've nailed it at the sentence level, then it's just a case of figuring out at the scene level what it is you should be doing. And remember that when you start with action, action reveals character. How characters react to things in a situation when something big's happening, et cetera, et cetera, reveals so much about character. And that's really why readers come to story for character, not for the exposition, not for the world, because they want to attach themselves to a character there. And in terms of what the YA editor said, when she says something exploding, in the first five pages. I don't want our listeners to take that literally to mean that there have to be bombs going off. It could be something exploding in a relationship between two people. It could be news that the character hears. It could be all kinds of different explosive things. But certainly we are seeing that more and more in today's market. All right, Emmy, will you read us the second query letter? Absolutely. So we're making a big genre jump here to a romance. 
I would say, like, so the structure of this query letter needs some work, so I'm just going to read it as it's written, but it's not quite what I would expect in terms of the structure. So it says, Justin Becker is one of LA's hottest R&B pop artists. He's on top of the world until he's falling from his spot at the top of the music charts, washed away in a sea of bad reviews and declining sales. The music isn't coming anymore, and with his EP set to drop in less than four months, he only has a handful of half-finished songs that he hates. As a last resort, his label hires a producer to come on board and help him finish his EP, and if he doesn't comply, risks losing his contract. The catch? Justin's never not written his own songs, and the last thing he expects is the producer they hire to be Pop Radio's up-and-coming singer-songwriter, LSA or Lisa Sanchez, aka his ex. Justin Becker was her high school sweetheart, a boy with dreams as numerous as the stars and willing to sacrifice anything to achieve them, even their relationship. When they're forced to work together or risk losing their jobs, the days spent in each other's company reignite old feelings, and she begins to wonder if she ever really let him go at all. Save Your Tears by The Weeknd meets Ghosted by J.M. Darhauer in a second chance romance with a splash of humor and angst for perfect for fans of the girl he used to know, the ex-talk to love Jason Thorne and meet cute. Stuck on You is a 96,000-word romance exploring the ups and downs of the music industry and the women in it, second chances, and the vital role of forgiveness and communication within a relationship. I am a proud adoptee from Guatemala and currently reside in sunny San Diego with my supportive family and two cats who love to walk across my keyboard when I'm in a writing flow. When writing books, I draw from my own experiences and the world around me to craft stories I hope offer readers a safe place to escape the storm called life. I am the contributing writer for several online publications and serve as the co-host of Hope Prose, a literary podcast dedicated to books, the authors who write them, and the readers they inspire. When I'm not writing or up until 3 a.m., I'm marathoning the latest K-drama, teaching Korean for an international virtual academy, or watching BTS videos. I appreciate your time and consideration of Stuck on You, Rebecca Black. Awesome, Amy. Thank you. Yeah, cats can be such assholes, right? Especially to writers. There's something about them. Okay, so, all right. So you said this wasn't the kind of format you would have been expecting. So tell us more or less what it was you would have been expecting and how you would have done this yourself. Yeah, so the formula that I always expect from query letters, and I mean, this is not a reason I would pass on a query if it was good, but I think that it makes it most efficient for people who are in the slush pile with a hundred submissions a day to go through them if the format is somewhat expected. So what I usually expect is like salutation, personalization. So like dear agent, a reason why you're querying that person. Then I usually look for the metadata for the book. So the word count, the genre, that kind of thing. And usually the comps. And then a summary paragraph of the book and then a bio at the end. So I really like like short, compact query letters as often as possible. I think a lot of authors don't always realize like what's going on on the back end of a lot of slush piles. And especially in larger agencies, it takes a long time to get through them and to make sure that the queries get to the right person, especially if it's sort of like a centralized inbox or something that's being used. And so the format really isn't like a deal breaker in terms of the opportunities for the book or for the author. But I do think that especially in places where you might have like an assistant or an intern who's like first reading the queries and making sure they get out to the agents, it can really help if you want your query to be considered in like a more timely fashion, if they are formatted in a way that's like really just formulaic, which it might feel boring to the author and it might feel like it's going to benefit you to vary it because like maybe it's going to be more eye-catching that way. But actually, I think that you want to do that with your writing sample more than with the letter itself, because the faster you can get through the letter and be impressed by the content, I think the better <laughs> in a lot of cases. 
Yeah, and something interesting, yeah, I think this had a comp that was a song. Is that right? It's the first time I've seen that. Can you speak about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't see this very often either, but I really liked it, especially since it's a book that is based in the music industry. It makes a lot of sense. I personally, I don't need comps necessarily to be books, and especially if it really is a song that's inspired you or you think that it really, like encompasses aspects of your novel. I think it's totally appropriate. I do like that she then gives some literary comps so that you know that, you know, she's well read in the genre and all of that kind of stuff. But I thought it was cool. I don't know the song, so I actually went and listened to it and I live under a bit of a pop culture rock. So it was a nice kind of like it set me up nicely, I think, to read the writing sample because it really sort of sets the mood. So it was kind of a cool I thought that was unique and interesting. Wonderful. Okay, so that takes us to the writing sample. Can you tell us what happens? A bit of an overview of what happens in the opening pages, and then you can tell us what you thought of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that this writing sample had a lot in common with the other sample that I looked at in that it doesn't quite get to where I wanted it to get, but not for the same reasons necessarily. There was some good plot action in here. And I thought, best of all, we do get a sense of the main character's narrative voice, which I think, especially for a romance novel, is really, really important. There's, you know, all genres have their various expectations, but I think that much like YA, romance has sort of like a level of voiciness that the readers are looking for that can be much like line level writing, like incredibly difficult to achieve and to teach. And so if you really have skills in that area, it's really nice to see those come out. And they definitely did in this sample. The one thing that I found challenging with this one is that the scene that we get is sort of the main character working out a gym and it didn't feel to me like it moved quite quickly enough to where I was getting a really clear impression of what the stakes of the novel were going to be. So some of those details do come out in a conversation that he's having with his like trainer bestie like in the scene and I think that was really good but it would have been nice to see it kind of shortened and made a little bit more I think if we could have had those details a little bit sooner that would have been great because again the author here is like kind of going through an expository moment and I sort of wanted those to be flipped structurally so that we could get the information about the book up front get intrigued by it and then we can kind of learn more about the characters and the like kind of their day-to-day life as the book goes on but I did think it was interesting and well written I thought the only thing we sort of missed was that, like, in terms of the book itself, I wasn't really sure where we were going in terms of what the character might go through, like, what kinds of trials and tribulations they might face getting to sort of the end of the book. But of course, because it's a romance, we know that there's going to be a romantic plot line in there. We also know that, and she did set up in the writing sample the musical conflict really well. So that I thought that she did a really good job achieving both of those things. Wonderful. And yeah, for our listeners, the challenge is always striking that balance between action, dialogue and exposition. And people tend to think of it as like a chunk of exposition, maybe two or three paragraphs, then a bit of action, then a chunk of exposition. And there's a way of balancing that, putting that exposition in between the dialogue, in between the action. Think of those action beats rather than dialogue tags as a great place to give the reader kind of snippets of information that you want them to have. So that feels a lot more organic than each part of that being so delineated and separated. Okay, Emmy, will you go to the third query letter? This one is from Adrian. And again, this one is also a sci-fi, so we're jumping back to that genre. 
and this letter is actually in the format that I would expect, although it gets a little bit detailed in the summary. So again, like the first one, in my written notes, I chopped out a bunch of things, but it's mostly just to make it shorter, not because it's poorly done. So still, this gives a good example of kind of the structure that I'm looking for. So it says, Dear Agent, thank you and the team at The Shit No One Tells You About Writing so much for selecting the submission and all the coaching and care you give to the writing community. I have definitely become a better writer thanks to all of you. So heartwarming. I love that. United Society's Dawn is a 98 98- K-word dual POV adult sci-fi novel set a hundred years after a meteorite strike sends humanity into space. With the style and structure of the Pillars of Reality series by Jack Campbell, this work will appeal to fans of Polaris Rising by Jesse Mihalik. I loved that paragraph. I just thought it was like so clean and neat and has everything you need. So... Okay. Annie St. Laure hopes to become an ecologist on a space station suffering from a mysterious tree die-off. Both the career choice and crisis are things her prominent senator father does not prioritize. Her desperate bid for data takes a revolutionary turn when her oldest friend pilots an illegal trip to Earth. She and her team discover that the surface is not toxic nor abandoned as the stationers are taught. Even with a tentative new ally in and, and I have no idea how to pronounce this name, so I'm really sorry. I think it's Ein, E-I-N, Gerard. The researchers struggle to win the planet side humans trust, meet up with their contact in the silent coup, and relearn their community's history. Ein Gerard's position on River City Council's yearly governing summit is thanks to his brother and in spite of their disparate views on policy. When he finds himself advocating for the stationers and the curious but earnest Annie St. Laure, he also finds himself the target of his people's suspicions. Ein must walk the diplomatic line between familial expectation and his own instincts about Earth orbit politics. As the research team's launch window dwindles, so does Annie's faith in her upbringing, their chance to intervene in the tree die-off, and her father. Before the revolutionaries can make their rendezvous, another space force lands with violent intentions. As she and her team piece together the true chain of events from a century ago, Ein's next choice will topple his political balancing act. I have a master's degree in both environmental studies and library and information science, a good fit for my day job as a data librarian. A central New Yorker born and bred, I've written most of this novel for my new home in Alaska where I indulge in cozy winter habits eight months of the year with my snow-loving coonhound. United Society's Dawn would be my debut novel and the first in a trilogy of which I have a complete outline. Below are the first five pages of my manuscript. Thank you for your consideration, Adrian Canino. And also, I just have to say that if you're going to mention your pet in your query letter, I would like to see a photo of the pet. That's all I'm going to include about that <laughs> yeah i'm surprised carly and cc haven't been demanding that cc especially as well someone on twitter recently asked if they should be addressing their query letters to pets if we mention them in our bios and i would say definitively yes <laughs> love that idea love it okay so what was your take on that i thought it was great and it's so interesting that it's so similar in some ways to the previous book but this is like very clearly a commercial book from the minute you start reading the sample. So it's interesting that they have sort of similar themes, but like a very different approach. The letter, like I said, I think it gets a bit long and I think it gets a little bit too much into the details. So when I went through and did my notes on it, I did like cut out a bunch of that. And I think again here, like the author's in a good place because it's better to have things that you can trim than it is to have to like go back and generate that content later. I think it's just a matter of like pairing it back to like, what do I really need? Like that's going to catch my attention and then I can get the rest of the information once I start reading. I appreciated that because it's a dual POV, we get an introduction to both characters. I think that that's important. But because they both have important plot lines of their own, obviously they cross at some point. I really, I thought that we had to kind of like really pare back on the details of those plot lines. So that's the one thing that I would suggest here is that 
I want to discover the story as I'm reading, not necessarily because I've already read the whole thing in the query letter. So I think just pairing that back, making it a little more like tempting rather than trying to be like really thorough about it would be more helpful in this letter. I did appreciate sometimes I know people waffle about like what details to include in their bio. And I wanted to say that I did appreciate here that the author included that she has education in environmental studies because it is relevant to the book. And I always find that really interesting when people are drawing on expertise they have kind of outside of their writing life. Yeah. And Colleen C. have said that as well. You need to be careful to not be giving a summary or an overview in the query letter. The job of the query letter is to whet the appetite, build curiosity, make someone want to read the book, which is very different to giving an outline that pretty much summarizes as much as possible. All right, Emmy, what was in those opening pages? Yeah, no, I just wanted to say that I think that people struggle too between the difference between the query letter and the synopsis. And I think you summed it up right there. Like the synopsis is where you get the summary, right? The letter should just be kind of a taste, like an almost like an elevator pitch of what we're about to read. So in terms of the writing sample here, I definitely got a good sense. It was very clear that this was a commercial book. I also found it interesting because the author did try to put the beginning of the first two chapters so that we got both points of view. That said, I found that the writing sample on this one, it gave a good sense of the world, but it didn't give a good sense of the characters. And I was sort of disappointed by that because I think that the characters, again, are like a real driving force behind a lot of books and especially in the more commercial space. For me, especially in the early pages, that's one of the things that's going to hook me emotionally and keep me reading. So the author started out with like a really action-packed scene, but it didn't really tell us anything about the conflict of the book overall, and it didn't really tell us anything about the character or their motivations. And so I think that in terms of pacing, it was really good. I was intrigued right away by like what was happening, but I really was left from the sample being sort of like, okay, I didn't really get a sense of like where we're headed. So I wanted more of a taste of kind of the narrative arc. And the other thing is that if you're going to do a dual POV book, and especially if you're going to include both in your writing sample, differentiating the voices of the characters is so, so important. And I didn't really feel like they were distinct enough in this sample. So I liked, especially what I got in the second chapter, I think that that actually gave the sort of like the second part of the sample gave a better sense of the book than the first part of the sample did in terms of like, I got to see a little bit more of the characters day to day life rather than kind of an exceptional event that they're going through. But it's hard to strike that balance. I really wanted to be able to kind of hear the characters' voices in my head. And in this case, I think maybe the points of view aren't quite tight enough. I felt sort of that both of the characters were in this kind of like omniscient sort of tone when I really want, especially in a dual POV book, to be like right here with the character. And I want to be able to pick up the book and know who's talking to me. And I didn't feel like it quite got there yet. Yeah, so so when that happens, what you may want to consider is third person close. You can you can kind of begin with the omniscient sort of overview and then you zoom in like crazy, super, super close to the character so that we start to get that. Because remember, it's not just in first person that you can hear the voice of the character. Third person close, you can really show the voice of the character there as well. Okay, Emmy, so can we go to the last query letter? Yes. And the last one was, I enjoyed it so much. And I worry sometimes when I really enjoy query that the author is going to come back and be like, you didn't give me any feedback at all. And I am 
sorry if my notes on this one are a little bit more sparse because I really just enjoyed it a lot. Yes. So this one is a middle grade query, also sci-fi, but of course, like very different than the other two that we've looked at just because it is for a much younger audience. And I thought that this was the only query letter that fit like neatly into a full page. And so there are like a little, a few little tweaks I'd make here, but I think overall it's pretty strong. It says, Dear Bianca, guest agent, Carly and Cece, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and I thank you for your amazing work in shining a light into the shadowy depths of querying. It makes it sound like we're already in the sci-fi novel. I'm pleased to submit Aliens and Other Teenage Troubles, a quirky middle grade science fiction novel complete at 45,000 words. Rooted in a contemporary Earth setting, it's a sci-fi that's not too sci-fi about growing up and finding your people. It blends the adventure of Last Day on Mars with hints of the voicey, introverted protagonist of Jinxed. The novel can stand alone or continue as a series. The universe may be filled with endless mystery and wonder, but the fact is, it's also occupied by some real jerks. Unbeknownst to the average human, a great number of these intergalactic jerks are locked in competition to conquer worlds and win the title of Most Ruthless in the Galaxies, the alien bad guy equivalent of the Oscars. Overlord Geoff has his eyes set on Earth. Grayson, an extremely average human, is graduating grade school with as many real friends as he started it with. Zero. His summer looks bleak, but plans change when Gray's mysterious new game console presents an opportunity to join the extraterrestrial defense agency, tasked with protecting Earth from hostile intergalactic threats. It's his chance to be more than a nobody, except everyone at EXDA thinks their mission is a joke. After intercepting an important message about the fate of the world, Gray tries to prove that the alien threat is real, and in doing so, ruins the summer for everyone and loses the first true friends he's ever had. The bigger problem, the aliens are about to show up and add Earth to their collection. It's time for Gray and the others to prove just what a group of teenagers is capable of when the world is at stake. I'm a neurodivergent writer, and I feel Gray represents those among us who go through life not realizing their neurodiverse superpowers. My writing is shaped by my engineering career, which has taken me from Formula One racing to developing equipment that has landed on Mars. I'm a member of SCBWI, and I live near Toronto, Canada with my husband and two energetic kids. Thank you for considering my debut novel. I just thought this was super, super cute. And the only thing that I would change is that it feels like the summary is like a bit kind of jarring it goes back and forth between the two plot lines a little too much for me so I would try and synthesize that a little bit more but the information that's in there I think is pretty good and I think it also does a pretty okay job of conveying sort of like the voicey tone of the book itself although it's definitely stronger in the writing sample than it is in the letter which is normal yeah because sometimes the risk is if you get too voicey in the query letter not all agents like that and sometimes that can sort of put them off so I think this person struck a really great balance in terms of getting the voiciness there but not making it so voicey that it's kind of off-putting so what was in the opening pages Emmy and did they live up to your expectations based on the query So this is like one of those queries where I read the opening pages and I just wanted to read the rest of the book right away. Like, I think the author did a fantastic job. It's the first chapter of the book. It is the last day of school for the main character, Gray, and he has this sort of like really embarrassing moment in front of his class at school with his teacher and then has an encounter with the school bully. So all of that happens within five pages. So in terms of like when we're talking about like explosions, like this book has it, (laughs) you know what I mean? In a figurative sense, obviously, but like it's perfect in terms of the pacing. It gives you like a really great sense of what the main character's day-to-day life is like. And it also gives you lots of plot action. So it's perfect that way. The only thing that I... And I always struggle with this when I'm getting a writing sample right at the beginning of the book that's sort of like a, almost like a portal fantasy, because we don't really get the sense that it's a sci-fi novel from the opening pages. But 
I feel like this happens a lot with middle grade because often we do like sort of meet the characters in sort of a more mundane moment in their life. And then later the world kind of opens up. I think that's a very popular format for readers in this age group. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's like, I think it actually is a very popular format. I don't mean that in like a marketing kind of way. I mean it like, I think readers love it too. And the pages are super, super strong we do sort of start to see that this gaming console that's referenced in the query letter appears in the opening pages. And I almost wanted to see it a little bit more because that's sort of our hint that we're going somewhere that's not a normal everyday earth kid life. So yeah, I really, really liked the way the chapter was written. I really enjoyed it. I honestly didn't give a whole lot of feedback because I just really liked it. (laughs) I was really, it was an enjoyable reading experience. We didn't meet too many characters, which I think is great, but the events of the story like gave us a really good sense of who they are, and they have great kind of like accessible archetypes that I think a middle grade reader would recognize. The most impressive thing, though, is definitely the voice. I found it like middle grade, I think, is the hardest, at least for me, like in terms of authors nailing that tone, because you're trying to speak accessibly to like a really young reader who might not be the strongest of readers also, but you don't want it to feel super pedantic. And I found that like the balance in this sample was perfect. I found the character really, really relatable, but at the same time, it wasn't like such advanced writing that I could see like a seven or eight year old, like tripping up on, you know, it feeling too formal or like the word choice being too advanced, which especially for sci-fi is pretty impressive. So yeah, I thought that it was really fantastic and definitely like I don't even know if there's that much to work on. I think it's query ready. So if that's good news for the author, then I'm glad. And yeah, this is definitely one I would be excited to see more of. I hope that this one gets picked up because it'll make a great book, I think. If they want to submit to you, can they submit to you? Are you representing middle grade at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I would say overall, like, I am always looking for more middle grade. I think that a lot of authors gravitate toward YA because in the market, they tend to get a lot more visibility on the shelves. I think that they tend to have big breakout books, but middle grade is one of my favorite categories to read. There are so many readers that are hungry for like really good middle grade. And it's still an age category that I think is really like in its infancy. We only really saw it start to break away from like chapter books and YA in the last like maybe 10 years. So there's so much space for stories that haven't been told for that age category, especially really, really well. I think a lot of agents, especially who represent children's lit, like will tell you, I get loads of like picture book submissions. I get loads of YA submissions, but middle grade submissions are much more rare and they're like such gems when they're done well. So yeah, I would love to see this one for sure. Amazing. So I hope the author out there is busy doing their happy dance wherever the heck they are, whether they're shopping in their car. So that's amazing feedback. Emmy, thank you so much for joining us. As per usual, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you. And we hope to have you back again soon to take a look at some of those guest submissions. Oh gosh, thank you so much. And I will say that I got a little enthusiastic with my comments on these ones. So I just want to say to the authors, like, please don't take it as a bad sign when you see a lot of track changes in there when you get them back. I try to give feedback that will give people lots of options to be able to choose how to solve the little problems that they're encountering. But it was totally a pleasure. It always is. And thank you so much for sharing these with me. I love seeing track changes in my documents because it always tells me how to fix something, which is for me sometimes the hardest problem when someone tells me it is a problem, but they don't tell me how to fix it. So I always appreciate that. All right. That's it for today's Books with Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. Molly? 
latest novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, releases on the 23rd of August, and I'm super excited to be doing a few tour stops over August to November in order to promote it. I'll be visiting Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Milwaukee, and Boston, as well as doing a few events in and around Toronto. If you live near any of these cities, I'd love to get to meet you at one of the events. Please check my tour schedule on biancamaray.com for details. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. 
Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Today's guest is the author of the Bad Axe County series, The Fly Fishing Mysteries, and the novel Red Sky, Red Dragonfly. In addition to being a novelist, he has worked as a newspaper journalist, feature film screenwriter, house painter, au pair, ESL teacher, cab driver, and freezer boy in a salmon cannery. He teaches writing at Madison College, where his experience is enriched by students from every corner of the local and world communities. He's won awards as a feature journalist, sports journalist, and short story writer before settling on a career as a novelist. A native of Madison, Wisconsin, he is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison with degrees in environmental policy and English literature. It's my pleasure to welcome John Galligan. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Excited to talk about writing. Thank you. We're super excited to be chatting with you as well, especially since you are, besides being a writer, creative writing instructor as well. So we know that you're going to come at craft very, very deliberately, and we've got some questions for you surrounding that. Now, just for our listeners, today we're talking about the fourth installment of the Bad Axe County series, Bad Day Breaking. Sheriff Heidi Kick struggles to prevent a radical religious sect from turning her county into the next Jonestown, while a dark secret from her past puts her life in danger. Perfect for fans of Mayor of Easttown, cults, strong female characters and readers looking for their first autumn read. Now on the show, John, we like to talk a lot about guidelines for emerging writers in terms of do's and don'ts that help them navigate the writing landscape. Because especially when you're writing a first novel and you haven't really studied writing, there's a lot of mistakes that you can make. And so we give our listeners a lot of so-called rules, but every time we give them rules, we do say to them that rules are meant to be broken so long as you do them well. Now, John, I can tell that you're a major rule breaker, which I absolutely love because I really, really want to pick your brain about that. Now, before we go into some specific examples that I'd like to chat to you about. Can you give us your take on that? Do you feel like there should be writing rules, do's and don'ts for students who are learning the craft of writing? I I do think so. I think you're right, though, that there's a balance between what rules do, which is they can inhibit you and, and make you think that, you know, you shouldn't even try this. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are just some real basic things that need to be understood to make writing work. We talk about show, don't tell, all the time. And that is a timeless and almost immutable rule. It can be broken, but it is almost never, ever broken by a beginning writer. (laughs) So the thing about teaching writing, though, is to be able to introduce the rule 
in the right way at the right time because, you know, students need a certain amount of confidence and momentum and inspiration and crazy self-belief before they run up against some kind of a big challenge that they're not quite ready for. So it's it, you're absolutely right. It's a balance between understanding and following rules and, and having the skill and the, and the wisdom to break them at the right moment. 100%. Skill and, and wisdom being the operative words there, especially. When it comes to show, don't tell, do you find that your students will have a light bulb moment when it clicks into place for them exactly what that means. Because I remember when I was still studying creative writing before I became, you know, a published author and a creative writing instructor, that was one of the things that I struggled with the most. My instructor would say, oh, this is telling, not showing. And I'd be so frustrated and I'd be like, no, no, it is showing. Have you seen the light bulb moment with your students when they click onto that? And is there advice specifically that you give them with regards to showing versus telling? There is for some students, and there and others other students. It just seems like that's just not, never something they're going to understand. I really focus on that. I mean, I have very specific exercises and examples, and and I'm I'm just on that all the time. When I listen to students at the end of a semester, and I, I read their comments and what they feel that they gained from the class, that is often the thing that stands out is that people understood what that finally what that means. I try to talk about telling in terms of, I try to call it talking to yourself. When we're telling, usually as writers, we are telling, we're, we're talking to ourselves and we're making assumptions about, based on what we know about our story and our characters and our, and the history of them and so forth. And generally when we're talking to ourselves, the reader's not part of the conversation. And so I, I try to really point out those areas where the reader is making assumptions about something based on their knowledge of a story that they haven't shared with the reader and they haven't found an, a, a way to, to show that. The other thing I talk about is that the reason that telling is so so popular, let's say, is that it's easier. When you have a, a big, long story, when you have a real complex thing, it's easier to summarize it in an abstraction. Uh, it's really hard work to find that one gesture or that one image or that one line of dialogue that is the tip of the iceberg of a complex history or the tip of the iceberg of a complex idea and so forth. It is really hard work and it's hard work even for experienced published writers. And so we often tell first because maybe we, we have, we've got up ahead of steam. We don't want to stop, but at some point we need to go back and recognize those moments where we've been talking to ourselves essentially and do the hard work of coming up with an image and it may take us many drafts to come up with exactly the image that communicates the idea we want. So it's easy to tell. It's hard to show. Recognizing that makes it important to put showing in its proper place in the process. Sometimes telling is what we do early in the process when we're just trying to figure out our story and, and who's who and what happened. And then as we go through this, the revision cycle, it's often a matter of finding those moments and refining them into into images. Yeah, 100%. And those early drafts are very much the writer telling themselves the story. 
And then during revisions, it starts to become more about the reader and making the story come alive. 100% there. And every story is different. Some stories require a bit more telling than others. You look at an author of Anne Tyler's caliber, who's won so many awards, etc. And most of her writing is telling rather than showing. So, so again, some writers are able to break that rule and they're able to not only get away with it, but really elevate it to the point where they're winning awards for it. And for others, it's just, it's never going to make a story come alive. Now, let's go to John's book specifically, Bad Day Breaking. Now, John, we have two agents on the podcast who read query letters and opening pages to give feedback so that authors can really polish up their query letters when they go out on submission to get an agent. And one of the things we're mostly saying is ditch the prologue. The prologue isn't doing anything for you. It just isn't working. Now, for our listeners, what John has done in terms of breaking the rules is he not only has a prologue, but it's a long prologue. We generally say on the podcast, if you're going to have a a prologue, have it be quite short, maybe just a scene, etc. So he's written, I think, 10 pages of a prologue. And what you did here, John, is you were super sneaky in that before the prologue, you even have a pre-prologue that is not actually called a prologue in terms of the Roman Pitta van der Hoof meet an inmate.com post. So can you tell us a bit about that? I'm not sure what you want me to tell you. You're right. I'm aware of that about prologues too, but I was once a judge for the Edgars and I read parts of about 300 novels or so in a year. I think your agents can relate to this. And one of the things that I observed is that prologues, when done right, do work. They're a great way to set up basically the condition under which the story occurs. And you can get yourself in trouble with that too, but I did notice that, that, that that happens. I found that in the stories that I'm telling in this Bad Axe series, that they are complex stories that involve the, the sort of the intersection at the point of an asterisk of all kinds of energies and and factors and personalities and so forth. And we talked about showing. I think the prologue is a good way of, of basically, in my case, showing two things. One, the sort of the core criminality of somebody who's corresponding from prison and setting up his next mark and also the setting in which this is about to occur and the people that it's about to occur to. The whole idea about breaking a rule is if you break it, it better work. So I guess I'm hoping I'm hoping this works and I, and I think in this case it does. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really, really did. And that's why I was interested to have you explain the function that you wanted the prologue to serve because I feel like if Writers, if we're going to use a prologue, we need to have it very clear in our minds what exactly it is we're wanting to achieve with that prologue that cannot be achieved by a mere chapter one. Something here that I also want to mention, I actually just want to read this meetaninmate.com post because I just thought the insight here was phenomenal, John, in terms of a certain kind of person in terms of their psyche. So I'm just going to read it for our listeners. So it's Roman Peter... Van der Hoof, Wisconsin Secure Program Facility. It is written in the Bible, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone, or she. Am I right? You know what this means, because like me, you have been wronged. We've all made questionable decisions in our lives, so who are they to judge us and take away our lives? I know you are the kind of special person who will now make the best decision of your life, because I am honest, non-judgmental, very good-looking, so I'm told, but you decide, and above all, a 
gentleman who will treat you like the precious lady that you are. Some people never pay for what they do or so they think, but we all deserve another chance. Believe in yourself. Believe in me. Trust God. That is all I want. And then it's the inmates details and then it said would you like letters from both sexes and it goes woman only white only no overweight and this is from a person who just said that they were non-judgmental but it's always fascinated me John how the people men who are the most misogynistic are the ones who are supposedly the most chivalrous and as soon as I read this post it just struck me as just being so so true can you speak a bit about that in terms of getting into the mindset for this particular character I think you're exactly right about chivalry (laughs) I got interested in this whole idea of a gentleman I mean anyone who calls himself a gentleman is almost by definition not and you'd be amazed if you go through the write an inmate meet an inmate.com stuff how many of these guys are a in there for crimes involving violence toward women and who are busily reconstructing their story so that they can do another one. It just seems to be a really deep mindset. And I was creeped out by the stuff that I read in there. And there's kind of this is a this particular one that you read is a pastiche of of what's going on in those kinds of posts. This character sort of is the driver for the novel because he's not only trying to to get out of prison and commit his next crime, but he's actually talking about uh, his history with Heidi Kick. As you get into the book, you find out that there's a reason he's in prison. Somebody's responsible for that. Not Sheriff Heidi Kick, but young Heidi Kick uh, when she was going through a really rough time in her life. And what you find out all of that means is that when he gets out, he's going to do something about that. Yeah. And for our listeners, in terms of getting into the psyche of your characters, especially when it comes to the bad guy, as it were, this is just sort of a masterclass in that because this kind of person who carries on about being a gentleman and that woman should be treated like ladies, what their mindset also entails is that a woman to act like a lady needs to meet his criteria of how a woman should behave. So again, it's just another way of controlling women and saying this is unacceptable behavior. This in my mind is how a lady should behave, etc. And a great way if you're writing these kinds of characters in terms of an antagonist is to, I'm assuming, John, you did a lot of research in terms of going onto these sites and reading these things. And if you don't, you know, want to go and interview inmates, etc. or men like this for this kind of character, great way is to find these resources and go on and see what kind of things these people are posting about. Right, so I thought the prologue worked incredibly well and it was interesting, John, that you spoke about the Edgar Awards and judging that. So for our listeners, remember that the Edgars are for mystery and thriller writers. So that contest is for that and certainly mystery and thriller books are the ones that have the most effective prologues when it comes to, if you're looking at prologue and genre, certainly that's the genre that really knows how to effectively use a good prologue. So if you're wanting to use one, certainly read more books in that genre to see how authors there have done it well. Then, John, what I want to chat about is adjectives. So as a creative writing instructor, I'm generally saying to my students, be careful with using too many adjectives before a noun. 
I generally say try just use one good one, two if you must. And then I want, again, I want to read for our listeners how John has broken this rule, because I think it's so important for you to understand that we are not trying to be prescriptive. We're giving you advice and saying, these are the mistakes some people make, steer away from them. But I think it's just as important to say, these are people who are doing the exact thing we're saying you shouldn't be doing, and they're doing it well. So I'm going to read out two descriptions here. One, her pace tracked the outbound progress of a tall, soft, comfortably handsome man with a long gray braid. So there we go. We've got tall, we've got soft, we've got comfortably handsome. So we've got three adjectives there. And then we've got another sentence here. Shuffling out of the courthouse basement meeting room on Irene's arm, ex-deputy Bender made teary eye contact with the broad-shouldered, red-haired, uniformed young woman in the back row of chairs. So we've got two compound adjectives there, broad-shouldered, red-haired. So they compound because they joined by a hyphen and then we've got uniformed which is another one and we've got young so that's four adjectives john tell us about the sorcery <laughs> thank you i'm flattered by your confidence in me well I, I think that it comes back to what we first started talking about which is showing and not telling often when you're using an adjective you're you're actually trying to help it noun because you haven't chosen the right one same thing with adverbs so it's a matter of making sure that when you're using an adverb, you're using it in a very distinct, purposeful way to say something, not to provide a crutch for the noun that you haven't been able to find. So one of the things about rules is that there's another issue out there, and that is voice. And in all cases, I am using a voice. And a voice really refers to the sound of the prose and, and how it reflects a personality, a moment in a person's life, the way a person perceives things, whether they think in a breathless, panicky way or whether they're calm and deliberate or whether they're very analytical and use precise language when they talk to themselves and so forth. So part of what we're talking about is when we use language personally on our own personal level to interpret our world, to talk to other people, to think about things, we are not following rules. We're not following writing rules. We're just being ourselves. And so sometimes using a string of adjectives or using an adverb, although it breaks some um, abstract rule, is integrally a part of the voice of that character to think that way, to see things that way, to perceive a character as a stack of adjectives or to perceive a character and not be able to quite put the right adjective on it and so fumble through a bunch of them, that kind of thing. So a lot of what's going on when those kinds of rules are broken in my case is that that's part of a character's voice. Yeah, very much so, because in the first instance, this was Deputy Stonebreaker who is following this person. And of course, a police officer is trained to be much more astute when it comes to checking out what someone looks like in terms of describing them and taking in all their features. And in the next instance, it's ex-deputy Bender is the one who is looking at the person. And again, it would make sense that that person would be taking in all of their physical descriptions and attributes because that's how a police officer would think. Something that I want to ask you there, John, which is interesting in what you've said about voice is, so this is written in the third person. Now, for our listeners, when we talk about voice, you know, a lot of the times we mean first person in that the voice sounds exactly like the character. But when you're writing in third person, there's multiple things you can do there with voice. You could be writing 
from the perspective of another character in the third person. You could be writing in the perspective of some godlike deity. You could be using the author's voice as the third person narrative voice. How would you describe your third person in this instance, John? Well, I think the question with third person then is narrative distance, which is how close is the style to the character. In my case, I like to close the narrative distance close enough that even though I'm using multiple third person points of view, it's it's a different voice in each case. And so that we're, we're sort of using the little tricks inside of third person writing to get close to that person and how they see the world. And that, that includes the kinds of vocabulary that you use. If I have a 16-year-old character versus a 60-year-old character, I'm not going to describe the scene in the same way. You can use sentence length, you can use fragments, you can use run-on sentences, you can use different things with grammar and punctuation and so forth to create a distinctive voice within the third person. And to me, that's really critical. Third person is not a neutral thing. It's every bit, it can be every bit as individual and nuanced and, and full of sort of interior narrative detail in the, in the word choice and in the, in the syntax and everything as first person can. So to me, it's switching from a th- one third person to another third person is just not a question of changing to another character. It's changing to a whole different way to use language. Yeah, especially if you're using third person close as opposed to a third person omniscient. So that narrative distance there is extremely important. Before we finish, John, you touched on verbs earlier and adverbs as well, which I want to give an example of an excellent verb that John used. So in the beginning, he's got the judge. It says Marge Joss struck her gavel. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. And then later, again, instead of saying Marge Joss struck her gavel again. What he says is Marge Joss gaveled again. So he's taken a noun and turned it into a verb and a very, very effective one at that. John, could you chat about that a bit? Sure. I could have said Marge Joss defiantly or conclusively, or I could have added an adverb there, but instead of that, I changed the the noun into a verb to shrink it into, uh, this is an act of absolute authority and certainty. This person is so authoritative with the gavel that she doesn't strike it, she just gavels. Love it. Yeah. And for our listeners, don't be afraid to play around with that kind of thing as well. It doesn't mean that you have to use a word that is the acceptable word. I mean, most writers here would have searched for synonym for struck or hit or pounded, etc. And John just turned that on his head and he was like, I'm not going to search for a synonym for struck or hit. I'm just going straight for the noun and I'm turning that into a verb. So don't be afraid of doing that and, and having fun with it. John, our time is almost up. It's been lovely chatting with you. Before we go, have you got any advice specifically for emerging writers who are writing in this genre and as well for men who are writing kind of from the female perspective in terms of that third person. You did it phenomenally well. What is your advice to other men who are who are doing that? Yeah, that's a question that I that I get sometimes and honestly you need to connect on the on the most human level. We both have souls <laughs> and that's what I think about. One of the things I, I probably would advise is to don't overreach, stay out of a woman's private business, deal with her on the level that you can relate to. And in my case, I relate to Heidi Kick most directly as a parent. And I, it's just, 
so easy for me to find empathy with her on that level. I've also been, this is an odd thing to say, but I've, I've spent so much time on the other side of misogyny and workplace discrimination. And, you know, I've, I've sort of been swimming in the, in the male environment and seeing, <laughs> seeing that directed at women all my life. And so it's really not all that hard to turn it around and put that stuff on her and understand how it must feel. I think we're, we're technically we're discouraged from doing this, and I see why. On the other hand, I really think that, for me, it's the empathetic exercise of touching base with another existence, whether it's across a line of age or gender or whatever it is. That's what interests me about writing, and that's what interests me about reading. So I would say don't be afraid of it. Don't expect it to be easy. Make sure that you find the deepest level of connection that you possibly can with a character who is unlike you, whether it's across gender or not. That would be my advice. And I would also say be prepared to catch a little flack for it. People are going to be watching out. As you say, it often goes off the rails. So there's a tendency for readers to read with that expectation or, or at least go hunting for those moments. <laughs> so you can be prepared for that kind of energy, I think. I think if you're going to write if you're going to be a man writing from a woman's point of view, you need to have a lot of women in your writing process. You need to have supporters and allies and readers that understand you and understand what you're trying to do and are and are willing to be part of your process to, to guide you if you need it. Oh, excellent advice. And I love what you said about reaching for that deep kind of connection because I feel like there's been so many examples from published novels where People have taken out passages of a man writing from a woman's perspective. And it's things like, I felt my breasts bounce as I walked across the room and I looked at my plump lower lip in the mirror or whatever. And these are the things that drive women insane when they're reading things written from men's perspectives. But like, as you say, if what you're tapping into is something so much deeper than that, if it's her experience as a parent, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're coming to it respectfully from the perspective of seeking that deep connection, then I don't think you can go wrong, which John absolutely didn't. So, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, we will link to Bad Day Breaking on our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can click on the link and purchase it there. Thanks for having me. It was it was a great show. You, this is really fun to talk about writing in this way. So I can tell you know your stuff, and it's, it's fun to talk with you. Thank you, John. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.